0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Happy you're here. Happy to be here. Excited to bring you today's episode with Kelly Moody, who is a critical ethnobotanist. I realized while listening back to this conversation that it definitely works as a follow-up to last, well, wasn't last week, but the last episode I released with Jules Evans. I guess I'm in a kind of critical mood at the moment <laughs> questioning things yeah so excited to bring you this conversation with Kelly recorded it a while ago our connection unfortunately was not amazing so if this is not the highest audio quality podcast you've ever heard <laughs> it won't be I mean if it is that's awesome um, but it won't be so I apologize definitely still good enough though yeah what do I want to talk about the mosquitoes in Creston have officially started to dissipate, which is amazing. There's a pretty bad bug season here, which occurs basically like right as the weather gets warm enough to go outside, but then you're kind of fucked um, unless you suit up. Never in my life have I worn a mosquito mask before, but that's like the norm. You just go to the grocery store and people are wearing like full head to toe mosquito nets as if it's no big thing. not easy to live here. And that's what's awesome about it. Um, Yeah, what else? Uh, We are in the middle of our July book club. We're reading Psyche's Sisters by Christine Downing, which is really lovely. I, for those of you that don't know, uh, launched a six-month book club starting in Aries season. And so I thought it would be really cool to pick books that have something to do with each astrological sign as the sun moves through those signs. So right now we're in cancer season. Uh, Cancer very much speaks about the mother archetype and home and relationships between women and yeah, all of that good stuff. So uh, this book is very much about the relationships between women, and it uses one of my absolute favorite myths of all time, the myth of Psyche and Eros. Uh, When I first... I guess, heard about this myth was through Robert A. Johnson's book, She. He also has a book called He, Uh, and each of them uses a different myth to talk about the sort of maturation of both the feminine and the masculine. So She uses the myth of Psyche and Eros to make this point, and I was so taken and affected by that book that I actually tattooed uh, the symbol for Psyche on my ankle myself. I gave myself two tattoos back in 2017, 2018, 2018, I think, and that was one of them. So Psyche lives on me, on my ankle at all times uh, and really serves as a reminder of the courage and hard work and self-reflection that it takes to be engaged in mature relationship, which back in 2018 was a big part of what I was trying to work through work through all my shit, and face myself so that I could have a healthy relationship for the first time in my life. Um, so yeah, that book really affected me. And this book uses a part of the myth which um, has to do with a Psyche's sisters, as the title suggests. In the myth, Psyche has some sisters that, you know, in a lot of myths, sisters can be kind of cruel and jealous and... Um, you know, doing things that on the surface might not look very loving or helpful. Uh, however, the author in this book is trying to point to the fact that these sort of same sex female relationships, even when challenging and difficult and triggering and toxic can be huge, can evoke a lot of growth uh, for whomever we're talking about. And so this book uses that part of the myth around Psyche's relationship to her sisters to show and illuminate how women's relationships with women, although very challenging at times, which I'm sure every woman can attest to, can also be provoking of growth and self-awareness. So I'm really loving it so far. I'm about 50 pages in. If you're a fast reader, you can still join us. If you go to anyakotz.substack, dot com slash book club You can learn about how to sign up. It is free. You just have to sign up for my substack, but that is free. And then you have to kind of click a little box that specifically uh, will allow you to receive the emails I send for the book club. So if anyone has any questions about that, you can always send me a message or an email on yakots at gmail.com. Instagram is always good if you can't sign up. Uh, But we, I think I chose books through Virgo season. (laughs) Next month, we're reading Dancing in the Streets by Barbara Ehrenreich. Um which is about like the history of joy uh and dance i think this was a a book that i found out about through sophie strand who's been on the podcast before so that's what we're reading in august in honor of leo season of course and then we're going to be reading breakfast at the victory victory by james Cars for virgo season which is all about finding the magic and numinosity in everyday life which I'm a big fan of. Um, So that's awesome. And I will probably be announcing six more months of books so we can complete the astrological year with books. Uh, I haven't done that yet. I haven't actually even thought about what books those will be. So that's coming soon. And if you want to stay in the loop about that and really anything that's going on, Substack is a a great place to start. Uh, Sometimes when I don't record podcasts super regularly, you might miss out on some announcements and some cool things that are going on so substack is the place for that again anyakot.substack.com and yeah i think that's all i'm gonna say for today i have three other conversations that i recorded that i'm looking forward to bringing you and they're awesome two of them are with people here in the san luis valley in colorado where i live two local people I keep joking how my podcast is just going to become like a Crestone advertisement. (laughs) But I can't help it because there's so many amazing, wild, interesting people here. And I have so many more ideas for people to record with too that I haven't even done yet. So that'll be exciting. It's also really exciting and nice to record with people in person as opposed to online. So definitely expect more conversations from people locally. Uh, I think I recorded... I can probably say like one of my favorite conversations on the podcast ever <laughs> with someone. Um, and that episode is coming out soon. Just wild. Yeah, so that'll be coming out in a couple weeks. And yeah, I'm heading up to Boulder in a couple days to go to a contact improv movement workshop uh, with Annie Brooke, who's pretty revered in the somatic psychotherapy world so that's going to be really exciting haven't really done anything like that dance focused since last summer so looking forward to getting back into my body in that way and i imagine that some of what i learned this weekend will rub off on me and probably reappear at the sex at dawn retreat this summer for those of you that don't know, myself and Chris Ryan and Cameron and Melaine Shane, who are mixed movement athletes and artists, uh, we hosted a really wonderful retreat last summer, which was really about deconstructing relationships, not just non-monogamous relationships. You do not need to be non-monogamous to attend at all. Uh, and yeah, we had a really great conversation, did some really amazing movement exercises. I led a Contact Beyond Contact dance workshop which I'll probably do again in addition to some other uh, physical somatic exercises that tie in with the sort of intellectual psychological stuff that we're discussing. The reason why I'm so like excited about this retreat is because it's so, so holistic and I think that's really necessary for us to understand ourselves and to understand how we move through the world. It's not just about our thoughts but it also shows up in our bodies and you know as Cameron and Malayne say often the way we think is the way we move. And the way we move is the way we think. And so our bodies can tell us a lot and also teach us a lot, right? So it's like if we are, let's say, super fearful in general, untrusting, you know, what could we do with our bodies in order to evoke more openness and trust, right? Like making sure our arms aren't crossed over our bodies, putting our shoulders back, lifting your head, standing up straight, opening your eyes wide right these these somatic things that we do in our body can actually spark the psychological or or the emotional so really excited about that Um, i will put the link to sign up for the retreat in the episode description but it is through cameron and malaine's website Uh, the retreat's happening august 20th through 25th in whitefish montana we're going to be taking the van up there sometime in august Uh, there are still spots open, I believe. So please apply as soon as possible, because if there are spots, there are only a couple. So I'll put the link to that. But I think it's buddhacon.com slash retreat with a bunch of dashes in there. Feel free to message me if you have any questions about that. And yeah, I think that's all for now. I am going to play you into this conversation um, with a song called feet keep moving by natural self kelly who you'll hear from in a moment has done a lot of walking and land stewardship by walking the land and planting native plants and uh, when i heard the song it was right after i recorded with her or right before i forget but it felt very tied into me to our conversation especially because the work that she does with ecology and land stewardship is incredibly challenging it's hard to make money doing this as you heard Or maybe heard in the interview that I did with George Witten, who owns Blue Range Ranch here in the valley. He and Sam, who manages the ranch there, were talking about, you know, they have got this organic grass-fed beef business, but that's really not what they're, that's not really the business they're in. You know, it's sort of a, a side effect and a way to make money to fund the work that they're really doing, which is land stewardship and protecting and regenerating the soil. But there's not really money in that, so... On top of the economic issues, there's, of course, the emotional and psychological difficulty of caring so much about our planet, which I know many of us do, but I think we can kind of keep the grief at bay if we're not in it and submerged in it 24-7, and so I have a lot of respect for people like Kelly, for people like Kelly Russell, who you've heard on the podcast, and Some other people I know that haven't been on the podcast who really, you know, live the life. They walk the talk, (laughs) literally, Um, and they're there. And I know from, you know, spending summers in the van and spending months at a time out in nature that the effects of the destruction, the effects of camping among Douglas fir forests that have burned and then just been replanted so that they can burn again. It's incredibly challenging and there's a lot of grief in there um so to be able to do that work and continue to do that work and be so educated about what's happened and what is happening like i really can't think of anything more challenging maybe yeah i really don't know if i can think of anything that would be more emotionally difficult to handle and so kelly keeps moving she keeps doing it (laughs) And I really appreciate that and um, respect that. So that's the song I picked. Please enjoy (laughs) and enjoy my conversation with Kelly and I will catch you on the other end. play Okay. So I am here with Kelly Moody. I've had this idea to do a podcast with you for a while, but it's been in my head. So I'm glad it's finally come to fruition. Really glad to spend some time with you. Where are you? Where in the world are you right now?
1: Right now, um, I'm sitting in my table and my Airstream trailer that I have been renovating for a couple of years, but usually during big chunks of time when I have the money or resources or tools. And then I'm also in Pretty much, not quite the town limits, but like the town of Paonia, Colorado, which is this little farming town in western Colorado that it's pretty cool for being like a place where people grow a lot of food and there's a big farm to table kind of farm centric culture here. So that's where I am right now, Paonia, Colorado, and it's quiet here right now because there's a road that's shut down right now one of the waves in or the sinkhole from all the rains this and runoff this spring and so it's cut off from like the front range right now so it's very quiet here i feel like i'm in hobbiton a little bit (laughs) but yeah (laughs) where i'm at lovely
0: yeah i love peonia we have a close friend who's an artist sean guerrero um he does like these big metal like sculptures and like reclaims airplane fuselages and stuff just like really wild stuff
1: I've seen, He's a fun guy.
0: You probably have seen it around. Yeah, there's some sort of airplane trailer thing in town, like yeah. on the side of the, like, yeah, the that. <laughs> I think that is well, there's he had something outside his studio for a while that looked like an airplane. So it could be that his studio is like yeah. right in town. Yeah. And yeah, still there. <laughs> so, yeah. I feel like it's funny. I, I see you teaching classes a lot, and I feel like you're like so close, but yet so far it's four hours is like, <laughs> it's just like too, it's like too much for just a day but I'm glad to know you're close. So you call yourself a critical ethnobotanist, or at least that you do critical ethnobotany. So I'm curious about maybe define ethnobotany for people, because I'm sure a lot of people have no idea what that is, and maybe talk about what does critical ethnobotany mean, and how do you fit yourself inside that world?
1: That word is ever-evolving, like my choice of use. It's so hard to figure out sometimes, like, what the right words are in this language to use. But critical is something I've used sometimes. And so ethnobotany is basically the study of, or like looking at the relationship between people and plants. And that can be very broadly interpreted. The material culture that comes out of plants, the food and medicine that people use from the landscape or just the cyclical relationships people have had historically. And it's the same with anthropology or sociology or some of these like fields or even Ecology itself, Mm -hmm. these are fields that we've invented. And there's a big story in a lot of these fields that are fraught with issues to to a degree, I think, because they didn't always come out of maybe the best intentions, or rather, people maybe didn't realize the things that they might have been doing in the past were not that great. So, like with ethnobotany, for example, the ways that people are studying the past whether it's cultural past or whether it's cultures outside of Western culture or whether it's how we understand artifacts of the past. And then with ethnobotany, it's like, how are we looking at what we think people's relationships with plants and landscapes are in the past? And then as that influences how we understand the present, and there's a lot in there that's still really heavily influenced by past ways that people did things. And so often that field, just like with archaeology, like archaeology was often exploitive because people would go look for artifacts and then they wanted the cutest looking thing they could put in a museum and not there was no like consultation with indigenous peoples or maybe those peoples were misplaced from their land and then at the same time the archaeologists are like oh we'll take an artifact of their culture and put it in a museum but then they ignore say things that are more obvious like fire rings or middens piles like trash piles things like that that aren't as like romantic that yeah. completely ignores often at times. So then that's all being reevaluated right now too, like in the mainstream fields of say archaeology, ethnobotany, anthropology, and how they all intersect. But as for ethnobotany, in this idea of studying the relationship between people and plants, it's well, there's so many things that come into what that means. Like for me, being someone that studied philosophy formally, I can't help but like weave <laughs> so many pieces together. How is the person or the group of people who are actually doing this studying influencing what is being said and the history of ethnobotany has often been like exploitive in its own way i don't want to make generalizations but it is a generalization in a way too like these white men going to like faraway countries to find the plants that they can sell to pharmaceutical companies to mm-hmm. make extracts to cure people in the western world there's a lot of that kind of stuff that's happened and and all that said i really admire some of those ethnobotanists like Jem duke for example worked for the usda and totally was a part of like worldwide plant exploration yeah I think that the history of that has been really problematic at times and so a lot of there's a lot of misunderstanding around what people's use of plants actually were historically and then how landscapes and ecologies actually like function sometimes in relationship to people yeah there's misinformation there's blind spots and all of that's being looked at right now there's a movement of that happening And like all those fields that I mentioned, but ethnobotany being tangential to all of that, because I mean, you can't talk about anthropology and archaeology without talking (laughs) about ethnobotany. I met this archaeologist this this winter in Arizona who works with tribes doing work around like there's a big solar farm they want to put on a sacred site with all these artifacts and burials and all these things. And she's the one who says yay or nay. And she's having to be the intermediary person with in tribes, or they have to actually go ask her for permission to go harvest plants from their traditional gathering grounds, which is crazy. That's still a reality in a lot of places, isn't it? Yeah. And so I ended up talking with her about like critical ethnobotany or even like the idea of botanical archaeology and all these things. And she was just like, this is something I look at, but I'm not. This is like blowing my mind, like looking more in this realm so it's interesting sometimes how I see all these things connected so when I use the word critical I guess I'm and it's not I'm not the only one that has used that and I'm cautious of whether I should even continue I don't know it's like one of those things like these are words in our culture and they're ever evolving and there's some folks in the California that use the words critical ecology to talk about like a field they basically Mm -hmm. invented that includes narratives around How we understand ecology and they're very like this is their thing. So I don't wanna I don't know how we talk about who owns ideas like just a word conversation.
0: (laughs) But it is I think think this idea about words, and you brought this up though, is such a huge part of the issue. I was reading something you wrote and have read it before around just even there's so many different words, but just our categorization of ecology, whether it's like we're calling it the wilderness or we're calling it nature. So yeah, I'm sure you come up. Like, I imagine you come up upon a lot of sort of walls in that because no matter where you turn, we are sort of like pinned in, caged in by the words we have to express what we're trying to talk about. And even those words are informed by these sort of cultural Mm -hmm. aspects
1: that are not that amazing. (laughs) Critical is basically just saying, hey, like, we are asking questions that you wouldn't typically be in engagement with around the field why do we see this particular tree in this way not what did they what did people use it for or what do the people still use it for it's more like why are we seeing this way
0: yeah and it's wild just how insidious it is like I I tried the other day there's some new series some nature series on Netflix about chimpanzees and like I'm really into apes (laughs) and learning more about them it was pretty like beginner level stuff but within the first five minutes like i only watched five minutes like first of all it's called chimp empire and like the entire thing seems like it's just civilization propaganda basically like everything the way we're talking about these groups of chimps is informed by our own idea of like civilized empire which is obviously so clearly not their experience but it's just wild to me how I mean for me at this point after like doing so much study into this it's impossible not to notice but like you said most people it's just oh but that's the way it is that's how things are like why would I think any differently about that and it really takes a lot of sort of like education and stepping outside the box to even recognize these things that we should be critical about potentially
1: yeah it's like I said, I studied philosophy formally and like some of the classes I took obviously were about particular topics like tribal religion or globalization of Islam or things like that. And But then some of the classes I took were just like critical thinking one-on-one. And we read things and we look at what it means to actually think critically about what we're reading and what it's actually saying and what language they're using. And I feel like some people are like, oh, you don't really do anything with a philosophy degree you can't get a real job. But I feel like the tools, I mean, it doesn't really, you don't need a degree to even do this. But I remember, I just like everything that I felt like I learned from like even critical reading or just being curious why people speak the way they speak about certain things or like what what is actually being expressed or is it even being expressed clearly is something that I'm constantly thinking about. And it's not like I can do that well all the time. It's just that, like some people tell me like words are, just words and they don't really have a lot of weight but I feel like they do to me and in this whole thing like yeah like often you don't see people taking five steps back to look at why they're even reciting the things that they're saying I mean that can apply to so many aspects of our culture and in looking at plant relationships people and plant relationships so yeah it's so interesting like the things that people just believe is truth too or they don't look at and look five steps back towards it's not like we Always know the full picture five steps back, but there's definitely sometimes more there than people realize. Yeah, I totally relate to
0: your experience. I didn't study philosophy formally, uh, but the college education I got was very much, I feel like, centered around, informally centered around critical thinking. There weren't tests. It was just like a lot of reading and writing and discussing things together. And one thing I was studying gender and sexuality. And so of course, one thing that we learned like right away was this idea of a social construction. (laughs) Like things are not just the way they are most of the time, vast majority of the time, but that our culture and our customs and our values and all of that have shaped these things. And that was something that, which is a long story, but I was sort of like new and intuited at a young age, but didn't have language for I didn't really know how to talk to anyone about it. And then just learning that word, I remember that being like such a revelation and thinking like, wow, like the vast majority of the world doesn't know this, has never learned this fact that things are constructed and not just quote normal and natural. I also don't know if I've ever really made money for my degree, but I do appreciate, I feel like I sort of, you know, learned how to learn or learned how to think a bit better.
1: Yeah, learned how to you learn how to look be able to look into other people's realities, even if you don't live their reality or fully understand it, which has been interesting. And sometimes that's like a gift and a burden. Definitely.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, how did you get into this work? So you studied philosophy. I'm curious if ethnobotany and ecology and <laughs> studying plants was always a part of your
1: world, or if that entered in later. Gosh, it's interesting. I've had people ask me this and I just taught for the last month like in-person classes and I'm always having to figure out what do I introduce myself because I'm 36 I've had a lot of life experiences already at 36 years old I'm like wow no wonder I'm tired sometimes (laughs) (laughs) no no it's great too but well let's see how did I first get into well I grew up around people working in plants there's that I grew up in the south southern virginia in a small town i don't know if my accent is like apparent right now because when i'm sick maybe because i have got a little cold sometimes it comes out more or if i'm even talking about my hometown it comes out more so it's weird <laughs> it's like hilarious. we're talking to another southern person i don't know yeah. but i've done a lot of work over the years like, so unconsciously to talk less southern cause people didn't understand a lot of the time but anyways <laughs> they I grew up in a little town in south central Virginia that's like on the border of North Carolina and it's more like the Piedmont region as they call it where it's like the foothills to the Appalachian mountains and it's more of the hot area where they grew a lot of tobacco and did a lot of tree farming and it was just a pretty intense like place to grow up. Hour and a half probably from any bigger city or town which was long enough there that I hardly ever went to any like city. And plus, like my mom was afraid of cities because you're from that area. My family's all been there like six generations, both mm-hmm. sides. And so they're like, kind of like the fear of the outside world. They wouldn't say that. But in a way, that's what I felt like growing up. But all my grandparents, great grandparents were involved in tobacco farming in some form. And even when I was a kid, I would go to my grandparents' farm. And my mom, like, was part of the generation baby boomers where they just went back to work. And I didn't have like time at home with my mother. I ended up hanging out with my grandmother a lot and my great-grandmother and just my grandparents in general, which they were living like more land-based. Of course, they were growing tobacco and spraying poisons all over the earth and everything, but they also grew all their own food or a lot of their own food. And so my grandma and I would just be doing things around that in the house, canning things and yeah, like doing gardening or whatever, which is really a good, really, I'm just like, Thank goodness for my grandmother. (laughs) Like, I had a great experience being able to bond with her over land connection Mm -hmm. in that way. And that she was always just supportive of me being, like, a weird artsy kid, too. So she would set crazy art experiments up in her old country house Mm -hmm. (laughs) for me to do stuff. But I grew up around that on one side and then my other. And I feel like this is just, I realize when I tell this, like, how did I get into this? I don't know how else to think about it, but... It's set the stage for me in some ways. And I think it's like people say, oh, plants, green thumbs or plant stuff can be like genetic, maybe because all my family needs to have like stuff with plants. But my other side of my family, my dad's parents ran a nursery and they started it in the 50s called Wayside Nursery. And it they sold like plants and art supplies and stuff because my grandma on that side was very crafty and art oriented which was very rare like for an area where I grew up like women owning businesses is a thing was like not a thing and then a woman owning a business that was very outdoors oriented and like she would propagate everything there too she would try not to buy stuff in mm. and then resell it she probably everything and then being like artistic like all of that stuff it somehow worked for years and my dad took it over and So I grew up playing there. We go into one room and there'd be all these like cactus. It'd be like the desert room (laughs) or like a little zone where there's all these cactuses that she would propagate. And then there'd be all this like tropical stuff. She had a whole greenhouse for tropical stuff. And I grew up around that. And then when I went to college, in a way, I was like, I got to get out of here. Wake this town and going up Southern Baptist too, which was, it's not like my parents were Super like religious in this way that felt domineering, although it came out in ways that I don't know if they even realized, but like it was more cultural thing, like we had these neighborhood churches in the countryside, and like everyone who grew up there, whose family grew up there, that's the church you go to, and that's where you see everyone my great grandparents went to, my great grandparents went to whatever I was like i'm and I was already talking about religion and philosophy then, and everyone would always criticize me like oh. You're asking weird questions. And so then that's, I just like, I got to get out of here. And I went to college and immediately pretty much got drawn to philosophy and religion. And then during that process, meeting a lot of really cool friends and having a lot of really cool professors that I'm still in connection with today. And like through that, it did lead me to, I rejected all of that stuff that my family did growing up, like at first. And then once I studied philosophy and religion, I just went, oh, It sent me to this like place of realizing that land connection is an important endeavor, like exploring land connection, like thinking about nature and realizing that even though I grew up in a farming community and people doing horticulture, I had no, I weirdly still didn't, I was still disconnected so much from like seasons. Like the fact that you maybe plant things in the spring and then you have a summer growing season. That was like, wait a minute, how did I not even... I mean, I saw that happening, but I didn't even have a full grasp of that. So Mm -hmm. I suddenly just had all these aha moments and it seemed like the root of everything. And so that was all the theory and all the like words and reading and talking and stuff. And then when I left college, I like started working on organic farms. I didn't really know what else to do after deconstructing All of reality, how do we go get a job in the office now? I was just like, I gotta get away from here, the south, all together right now to New Hampshire and go do a wolfing type thing. And then, and then I met an herbalist up there, it was a wild foods festival. And I saw her with all these wild plants out on her table and talking about them. And I was like, What? I've been like pulling up out of the garden as a part of my job right now. And I'm like, But you can eat them or use them for things. I was like, What? And then I started practicing for her, even though I really didn't have time to, but I did. I started apprenticing for her. And that whole season I spent, yeah, like shadowing her and practicing for her around, like looking at plant spirit medicine, wild plants. I don't like say I'm like a person that's like into plant spirit medicine, but it's just part of it. Mm-hmm. And just really opening a whole other world. And then I just kept following that thread after that, realizing that I, had a whole universe there that I was curious about, and that realizing the more you know, the more you don't realize you don't know kind of thing. I was like, holy shit, I don't know so much. And I just felt this insatiable desire to learn. After that, about plants, it like married my like theory-based brain with my fieldy, get out in the woods kind of brain, and and then I did some other educational stuff after that in Ohio. And then in Asheville, North Carolina, and just kept following that and like finding people to study with. And then eventually, after I apprenticed for an herbalist down there, I ran a small farm project that was pretty not as like crazy as the one that I was working at New Hampshire, where it was like a homestead, intentional community, everyone lived off grid. and, And then we had a small farm project going at the same time that I would like make a little money from, but it wasn't like a big thing. It was just enough. And while I was living in Asheville for those couple years, I ended up hanging out with some ethnobotanists who live there. So I ended up like getting time with people like Mark Williams, who's this amazing ethnobotanist. He's been on my podcast once and I've been always wanting to have him on again, but he would be like an amazing person to talk to about like nature and plants and Appalachia and stuff like that. But he and a couple other people really influenced me and thinking about groups of plants and patterns of plants and plant human relationship stuff and then at some point like growing food and maybe it was out Saturn return <laughs> I was like I'm too comfortable here and I <laughs> hit the road <laughs> I like suddenly was like I hit the road I had a friend who worked in the cannabis industry in California and they were like I have a job where you could make 20 grand this winter this is the kind of thing that I didn't used to talk about publicly but it's different now than it was back then (laughs) yeah eight years ago and so I went and spent the winter like working in that industry I drove across the country and then ended up making like all this not a ton of money but for me it was a lot being a farmer and so I made this money to then be able to go back and actually do farming stuff and then that kept Pulling me to go cross country, it kept pulling me away from just being like in one place. And and so every time I drive West, I would use all the skills that I had learned in the South from all these really cool teachers in the East in general and applied it to the ecology that I was like moving through. I was just so enamored by the grandiosity of the West and landscapes of the West that I just kept desiring to do that trip and and take my time and stop places and look at the plants and do stuff and then i just stayed out west after a while and then started seeking out teachers and people and like places out west and doing like wild food camps with my friends and meeting up with my other traveler like nomad friends and harvesting wild foods and going to herbal conferences like being involved in what that looked like in the west and then after a while there was a lot of conversations and questions and things coming up that i didn't know how to answer like how do you ethically wildcraft something in the world we live in today? And just the conversations around indigenous relationship to land was so much more alive in the West than I ever experienced in the East, just because of colonization being like so much further back. And of course, that conversation is happening more in the East now, too, where that's relevant. Where that's possible, like in the southeast now more because of Cherokee folks do have a living language and like a, a lot of intact cultural stuff around plants still and and even southern appalachian like herbal tradition and plant medicine is so like influenced by indigenous african and scott irish cultural uses and stuff it's so all morphed together but in the west there's just like more conversations being had about native land or like how people use plants like i just i never been places where i was like a minority like as a white person i guess like um where there was like all native people around me and like that just happened more in the west i was like holy shit i this is just something that's i'm sitting with and so in all of that like in my exploration and trying to understand plants at some point in california when i spent a lot of time there i found the book tending the wild by cat anderson ethnobotanist i guess or anthropologist i don't know what she called herself. But she wrote a, basically a whole book on how indigenous peoples in California tended their landscape and managed the plants there in this very poignant and significant way and literally altered the whole ecology. And I was like, okay, and this has been something I've been missing. <laughs> yeah. It's not that simple to say, what is wildcrafting or what is wild or what is nature or what is an ecology? like. And then I also met this person named Phoenicia Medrano and other people who had hung out with this person named Phoenicia Medrano who was like this very unique sometimes intensely hard to be around person who lived on horseback in like Nevada for 30 years or something like basically gathering seed and replanting seed and like tending what she would call wild gardens I guess of plants and Uh, she just made an impact on most anyone she met even if she pissed you off and you didn't whatever talk to her again but (laughs) it was this one little piece in this like keep discovering this other understanding of ecology and human relationship to ecology that for me now has been like a big part of my thought I can't unsee this now and when you say this what are you referring to I can't unsee that ecology is something that we often define as like humans are outside of it or something, which is weird, but right. we often include other animals as a part of how we define ecology. And of course, they have impacts in their interactions with other parts of life, which, even in ecology, like people still often don't. Of course, everything is different because we k- killed a bunch of wolves and buffalo. Like, of course, but there's still this disconnect the Yeah, your actual like water is gonna be affected by the fact that there's no wolves. There's still something there that's like a culture that doesn't want to acknowledge that wolves have such a big impact in that way, for example, or that it would take us facing our fear of this other predator or the unknown or whatever in order to (laughs) like change the problems we're seeing and blaming on something else. Anyways, considering that there was a big there's a big impact that other these other beings make. But also The impacts that like indigenous peoples historically made in their landscapes, I think is something you often really don't see acknowledged in ethnobotany or archaeology or anthropology in as big of a way as it should be acknowledged. And for me, the whole idea of I can't unsee this is like actually being out with the plants in the field and realizing I'm not just seeing something that just emerged randomly and right. had no... And it's just there randomly in some way. And that there's sometimes, even though there might not, there's not people. And I mean, there are people still tending landscapes, native, non-native, whatever. But but often the ecologies that we see are there because people in the past interacted with them in a particular way. And that's the thing that's hard to unsee once you see it. And so when I use the word critical to talk about money too, it's partly like, what is it that keeps us from seeing that or what is it that is influencing us to even speak about plants in relationship to what we as westerners want from the land or like what we brought over onto turtle island as like an ideas about what is a good or bad landscape or even the kind of dismissal of the impact the indigenous peoples had on landscapes is part of the critical conversation right like why is it dismissed why is it downplayed and there's i think a lot to those conversations Yeah.
0: Yeah, such a complex. I feel like these sorts of conversations, I want to go in six different directions at the same time. It's just impossible for it not to be like holistic. I want to talk a little more about land tending and land stewardship and maybe like how that differs from, quote, farming. And it seems like you sort of made a transition to what sounds like more kind of, yes, maybe regenerative and like homesteady farming, but then moving into doing a lot of nomadic traveling and planting and tending the land as you go. And so I think these words, I use them a lot and they get thrown around a lot like land stewardship, but I wonder if people actually know what that means. So I'm curious to hear your kind of overview of what that means to you.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to what that and. And things are always different for me too. So it does look a certain way online where I'm like, this is what I've been doing for years. And I've been just exploring these ideas for a while. And sometimes I'm out like, what does that mean to be out there doing (laughs) this? Land tending. (laughs) But I don't necessarily think that the farm and tending land and regenerative, I guess, is a word that we can use a reciprocal or in a playful, like experimental way. Are necessarily separate entities all the time like we live in a world that has the the construct of private land and we live within it and so we can tend landscapes that are fenced off and the ones that are fenced off for private use but also ones that are fenced off in these bigger public spheres that there's a fence there too but and also those places are used by our government in like research extraction ways too, like most public land designations are still within the framework of what is it good for right, economically. And in the West, we have some public land designations that don't exist in the East, like the LM, Euro Land Management, for example, and different designations have different, like what is allowed in that way. But just because it's a public land doesn't mean it's going to be protected from like being destroyed in some way if it comes down to like it's economically beneficial for the government to contract out A piece of land to be a solar farm or lithium mine or coal mine or whatever so when it comes to land tending or land stewardship or like this idea of regenerative land management it's still this thing that we're like we're evolving as we move into the future because it can't really fully look like the past because we don't live in a world that looks like the past right and we live in a world where we have these fences everywhere and so I think the farm the idea of the ag the agricultural entity the farm and the way that mentality is not it's not necessarily that it's totally bad, although I think we have to ask ourselves questions of at what point does it start to take more than it like is a relationship that can be managed in a way that is creative in place, because tending landscapes out on public land, for example, where people would consider that like wild space that isn't agricultural we often see that yeah we often see that as this is wild and we're just out here managing wildness but it's actually like you couldn't look at those places as having an agricultural element too at least the way that we see it now like having um like needing a certain kind of like disturbance or interaction to thrive mm-hmm. and then even on the, in the agricultural setting like i'm on an organic farm right now and they're growing medicinal herbs and this person that runs this farm, for example, is growing like cash crop type medicinal herb stuff all organically, but he's also managing another whole section of the land in this way that I guess people would call like permaculture or something that's investing in things that are long-term and like tending the plants that are already growing here. And like, what? why are they here and what are they doing? And so he's doing all this experimental stuff of what does it mean to have part of the land be like, I need to cash because we live in a world that needs that, but also what am I tending in the in-between? Because yeah, you're not devoid of wildness when you're in the in-between. So like here, like letting certain wild plants still exist within the crops mm-hmm. and having them be nourishing in our lives. And yeah, I don't think that the two worlds are necessarily split. And I'm always thinking about what is ideal like. When I talk about wild tending or like land stewardship, the way that I see it being possible in the west and then i go back to virginia where i grew up and i try to talk about my friends who are doing like urban farming or like farming work they're just like i don't all the way they don't all the way get there's only don't really have public land there in the same way they don't, they don't all the way get you go out and you like make camp somewhere and then you just gather seeds and replant them like it doesn't all the way make sense sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah like i think But it's just also still like a place where the mind frame is so dictated that everything's pretty much private land. So Mm -hmm. how do you even think about the other spaces that exist? But yeah, I think for me it's been it's yeah, and it's be seeing what needs to happen potentially is really overwhelming sometimes because nobody has time because everyone's working all the time because we need to make money to pay the high rent prices pay for groceries and yet at the same time tending could give us the food we need or give us security we need in a world that's become increasingly insecure like in so many ways and it's hard and a lonely thing to go out and do tending work that doesn't have any economic I'm not like I mean, I have some friends that own a seed company and they are like, oh, we're curious about maybe selling some of these seeds, which maybe is fine, but it's so much of it is just a part of being human, reclaiming practices that would benefit both the landscape and the harm that's been done just by displacing people who were like tending these landscapes for so long. Yeah. But I think taking pieces of the past and understanding how some of these plants want to be interacted with, and tending them for themselves, tending them for whatever the future holds, even if it means it all gets blown up, or tending it for future people right. who might be able to like step aside from so much of what keeps us from being able to just be fully like living in this way again.
0: Yeah, it's. I had this funny experience here, where I am in Crestone. I've been helping out at some. Different gardens, community gardens, and gardens that have people have been tending for 30, 40 years here. And it's very difficult to garden here because the ecology is super harsh and it's dry and we don't, it's cold (laughs) and we don't get a lot of water. And so I'm interested in doing more of this stuff on my own, but it seemed pretty clear that the best place to start was with people that have already been doing it. And I had this hilarious experience that like kept happening and was making me laugh because I was I was planting shallots at the community garden and it's a CSA. So if you work X number of hours per week, you get free produce in exchange. So I'm planting these shallots that ultimately I'm going to be able to eat. But like I notice in my head that I keep having this thing of, oh, I should take some of these shallots and plant them in my house so that I have them there. And then being like, but Anya, like you are literally planting the shallots that you will get to eat later. And just noticing the ways, even like despite my awareness and commitment to thinking critically about these things and living in a critical way, it was just wild to see how these ideas of like private property and owning things for myself and keeping things for myself were still infiltrating my consciousness so yeah I can understand that you go out to camp and you make a fire and you plant seeds where the fire was like you might not ever go back to that place of course ultimately we can understand the value in putting seeds there regardless but it does seem like there's a mountain to climb as far as awareness and understanding goes before like the vast majority of people would get the point of doing something like that if like they're never going to be there to see the outcome
1: it's the planting them there because you might not go back but you might i mean people were intentional about what they knew they would be back there the next year or they'd be a part of their cycle of movement and that it's nice to know that what you like to eat is going to be there potentially and so they're definitely or like you can trade that with someone else like yeah. they may be they might like to eat this plant too and so it's not that crazy to think like plant things near where you live your life it's not like selfish necessarily it's just part of being an animal
2: yeah.
1: wanting to Would you like what I think about in a place like where you are is like well what is already growing all around that is people are ignoring like wild onions or alliums or like biscuit roots or Mariposa lilies that people don't think realize are food, or right. think that they could actually be tending those. To and if they were tended, there might be enough for everyone yeah. potentially. It's not like bad to be like planting some of these things that are tried and true, cultivated. Of course, a lot of the wild onions and Mariposa lilies are cultivated too. We just don't have a we, Our culture doesn't see them that way because we they're out there. They're the that the fact that they were cultivated historically is not is ignored and so therefore they're seen not they're not looked at seriously as food and that's the thing that's often the blind spot is like not realizing there's food everywhere even in the most desolate or dry barren type places oh, yeah, totally. yeah it's wild what just
0: grows naturally here it does well especially once you
1: get up a little more
0: into the mountains yeah it's been cool Yeah, it's refreshing to hear you talk about, and you've said it a few times, like we can't really go back to what was. And I feel like this is also a barrier for a lot of people, especially because we are talking about going back at the very least to learn about the ways that Native people and Indigenous people were engaging with the landscape. But at the same time, there are so many barriers to doing that. And I I feel like I get very frustrated sometimes (laughs) with, these realms of speaking about like land stewardship or like the fact that we have all these boundaries around landscapes now, and like, what is wilderness and what isn't, and who are we excluding and what plants are we excluding? And what plants are we not excluding? And I feel like I'm a very, like applied philosophy type of person. I'm always like two steps ahead, which can piss people off sometimes. But for me, it's always like I'm in agreement about all of the philosophical stuff, right? And all of the things we need to, like do more of or stop doing or do again and yet I feel like I come up against this issue all the time of like those are all great ideas but what is it that we can actually do if we have these like safari parks in Africa or elsewhere and we're talking about like reintroducing native people back onto that land but now that population has grown by four times (laughs) that is so much different than it was before and I assume that you come up against this a lot too and I'm curious how you engage with well what do we do now and what is that actually what can that look like within the confines of the systems that we're working with
1: yeah that's a big one because we could talk about what mistakes were made or like what happened in the past that wasn't a good thing and like what it should be potentially of course should still there's still a little lens there but yeah like what now yeah we made all these national parks in this country, but now they're elsewhere. And like part of what it meant to do that was to remove Indigenous peoples, which now they're realizing maybe wasn't a great idea because they were literally managing that landscape to be what it was that they thought was cool enough to put it <laughs> as a national park in the first place. <laughs> it's definitely realization
0: like, oh crap. And this is, and what is that? Can you just, what? I mean, I know depending on the landscape, that's different, but what were they doing? Can you give a few examples of what they were doing to manage the land that made
1: people think it was so cool? It depends on where you are. Yeah. Well, like in the US, I guess, for example, like Yosemite National Park, which is in California is a good example of this. And you can find, there's some stuff written out there about this. Um, my friend Calibri, who was just visiting, actually, used to run a podcast called Voices for Nature and Peace, wrote has written a book about this but also there's people that have like how national parks and ecologies have like what's the deal with that and and indigenous displacement affecting the ecologies but so many for example like the quintessential like picturesque national park like john muir who was part of the sierra club part of the whole like like preserve the wilderness movement like untouched by man and all this stuff like and pristine and all these things these like ideas of our grandiosity and beauty and of course they picked national parks a lot of them were picked because of a particular kind of interpretation of like their grandiosity cultural lens around them being like monumental in some way so that's why we have less grasslands type public land areas because they're to me they're grandiose because they're large of ass but they're not as grand like Yosemite they didn't remove the indigenous peoples overnight they ended up like having them work for the park Mm. in a weird way they got to still live there to a point but like then they were working for the park doing like educational stuff or doing weird i don't know some of the stuff was really messed up like making them do cultural stuff that wasn't even their culture because that's what the people wanted they wanted to see a certain idea of what native culture was and it wasn't even there (laughs) like they were but a lot of during that displacement and turning it into a park basically like amusement park they weren't allowed to just live the way that they did they had to live in certain housing they had to live a certain way they were put over here and over and eventually they all got displaced and in other places people got displaced entirely and and when the national parks were forming there was still like people indigenous peoples being put into reservations and all this stuff happening but once once people were totally removed from the valley like the valley got overgrown yosemite valley is like a Glacially carved grand, very very grand valley that lots and lots of people like to go visit and see the waterfalls and how cl- go climbing and all this stuff, and not just the valley, but around the whole area too, like the way it is that that landscape was managed meant that the place of yeah, like it was like a park like setting where there was on. Space and hmm. there was like cultural burning happening, there was thinning, there was like digging and movement of plants and ma- maintenance of like such fields, say where there was like basketry materials. Yeah, like there's accounts of like native folks coming back and being like, This place is a mess, they destroyed yeah. it, they aren't taking care of the land, and it just looks like a wreck, it's just a mess. And yeah, it's interesting now they're realizing, okay, yeah, like the valleys filled in with all these trees and it's like less open where there'd be savannas of different plants that can't live now no. because there it's too thick and there's debris everywhere there's all these big fires it's like the management they were doing with control burns or we call it controlled but like manage burns thinning, yeah. digging moving plants coppicing just stopped and then everything changed from that suction out i think now they're understanding we had a whole era of like super big like not liking fire to right smoky bear like demonization of fire and part of that had origins and not taking seriously indigenous peoples were doing like they saw people managing fire when they came but they thought it was just them playing fire and doing nothing important (laughs) and so then there was an element of these people don't know what they're doing. We do because God ordained it, and so we're going to take that land and we're going to do what we want with it, what we think is good, and that doesn't include fire. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now people are realizing, oh man, yeah, we're wrong. <laughs> but no, a lot of stuff that's not being—it's a slow process. It's still like re-seeing or seeing differently. Yeah, and the mistakes made is still a process. And then how this is like also moved itself like these ideas overseas has had a different effect like in central and south america and africa like guatemala for example i was just reading a lot about this winter and they created these preserve biosphere preserves and protected areas thinking okay this is going to be a good thing and then once they removed the indigenous peoples from these biosphere the like protected areas to protect the landscape i guess It, it then the cartel moved in and like they've been like it's like literally the maps before the preserve and after are so dramatic and intense it's like in a place where they're trying to quickly industrialize quickly catch up with western society quickly like navigate like a government our government's corrupt but their government too like in a way that's like even more intense there's no nothing to stop people from like literally clear-cutting all of that because even the government is just kind of blind eye because they're making money off this too and so actually removing the people who were living there and stewarding those landscapes meant that and then the suction was the cartel <laughs> and there it's complicated some of the articles i read about it like how it's all woven together in like local commerce and stuff but they're like the whole place is getting like completely logged and turned into like these crazy plantations or the front for like cartel activities like so it's supposed to be a preserve but there's no one that's Right, They're, the people Reserved. who know how to manage it aren't living there and yeah. then the government's not going to keep people out from right. moving in he's doing for all exploitation of that landscape so it's not actually a good thing but what do you do now and the question is
0: exactly i was going to say this is a perfect example of that right because it's like mm-hmm. we could simply say oh well they'll let the people back on their land but it's but that land's decimated now and like we we get uh-huh. ourselves into these Complicated scenarios where now we have to like solve this huge problem that wasn't even there before and come up with all these creative solutions
1: for how to restore things. It's just like mind boggling. Yeah, it's like it is a futuristic endeavor. And you had my friend Teo on your podcast like last year, maybe Teo Montoya. I've had him on my podcast a couple times to talk about. We're both super into he came and joined me and my ex partner when we hiked the Colorado Trail for a couple days of it and like Mm -hmm. we were having all these conversations like out there together like what would it look like to manage this land it's so overwhelming Mm -hmm. and talking to him like he's very got a lot of different things he's doing and one of them is like doing futurist sort of like indigenous futurism writing projects and a lot of he said it's not that simple to just do land back and give all the land back to native peoples too because we don't even know a lot of us don't even know what to do anymore and nor the lot of
0: people like have also been stripped yeah. of
1: their culture. You can't just hand it all back to us and be like, here, you know, like, <laughs> you know what you're, like you're the one that's not that simple. In some cases, the people really, they know the folks really do know, they do have intact cultural knowledge and traditions, but they still live in capitalism, just like the rest of us. And it doesn't necessarily mean that these folks are going to use land in a way that people environmentally minded even think is a good idea. The Southern Ute tribe here in Colorado, like they are the biggest explore i mean it wasn't are they frat it's like gas wells like their entire reservation's full it's like check reported down there because of the past but they're like going for it like they're on this hot spot of having natural gas and and they're just going for it's like they're not stewarding the land in the way that we i don't know right they're, they have their own little world over there but yeah it's not that simple like just handing it back over and being like okay we feel bad about what happened and we're gonna give it back to you and that sentiment is great and in some ways yeah like we and not all the yeah not everybody from europe can just who has ancestors maybe come from europe or from lots of different places can just go back there
0: yeah. and there
1: was so much genocide and horrible stuff that happened right and displacement from land but just simply putting people now who are like traumatized and disconnected from a lot of right. these things because things taken just saying okay no you do it it's it's all of our responsibility to figure out how to right. tend the in-between or tend the edges or tend the like the, the fence lines and tend the bo- both sides of the fence as we move forward and not just saying well yeah we should necessarily do it exactly the way that native folks historically did it and some folks, of course, still doing some of these practices. And maybe some things are going to apply differently now. We have these whole things like permaculture, like these ideas of what is permaculture. It's an amalgamation of land management practices of the past that people like, are. it works well within private and land ownership models. And sometimes I feel like it's helpful. And sometimes I feel like it's not actually getting at the point, yeah. but it could be that like, okay, well, you live on a piece of private land, you have the privilege of having that, whatever that means, and then on that piece of land, that then you can then spread outside of it, like it's with your neighbors or whether it's on public land or like whether it's, but I think it is complex because it's not even legal to live on public land, <laughs> really, <Yeah. laughs> or be like, even when I was teaching these ecology classes, I'm like, isn't it strange that we're up here? And you look down in the valley and that's like where all the people are but we're up here and there's all this food up here, but we have to go back down there eventually and live down there. We can't really live up here. Why is there this line there? Like where it's, well, you live here, but you come and play here and you go back. And then you experience landscapes as like this wilderness or whatever, these places to go visit. And like, how do we diffuse that line? I don't know, but I think playing with... Uh, cultivated and wild is part of it and it it, but it is intense like I feel lonely a lot in this work because of the fact that people don't have time to step away and it's hard for me because I have to make money to to live in this world as well just to meet basic needs that you can't always you can't just yeah we just this is the world we live in and so like how do I prioritize that time and just doing it by myself is not it's just it's I don't know how Finnish should, she had people with her regularly, but she was often by herself out there. And she, yeah. like, it doesn't, it's not sustainable that way. Cause we are people that are supposed to be like living with other people and social bond. Blah.
0: Yeah. Yes. That's so true. And I think, yeah, the trying to do this work or really like doing anything that means anything within the confines of capitalism is, mm-hmm. Like impossible. I literally wrote that as a note the other day. I was like, like capitalism is not gets in the way of anything that means anything, everything that means anything like from spirituality to ecology. Like I think I I believe in our capacity to be creative and for people who are thinking in the ways like Teo is thinking. And I think like you and I are thinking and so many people who listen to this podcast about creative ways to move forward but holy shit is it difficult when at the end of the day we need to survive and that requires money in our culture I think you listened to the last episode I posted with these ranchers here in the valley who are like that's their job that's what they're doing that's what they want to be doing that's what they've been doing for 100, like over a hundred years is stewarding the land but there's li- there's no money in that And they have this big ranch and people who work there. And so then they're like running a beef business, which is great. And they're providing great grass-fed local beef with cattle that have been here forever to, to people and donating to the food bank and all these great things. But ultimately, like if they had to choose, that's not the work that they're doing, right? There might be animals that are on the land helping to regenerate the soil, but that's not like the business, And so, yeah, I think, I don't know, I think I saw you maybe post once, like, I'm curious if people, if in the future there will be more, like, grants or just, like, ways for people to do this work through donation or, yeah, through funding of some kind, because I feel like that's a massive barrier. Well, that's
1: a good question. I think... I would love to get grants for some of this stuff, but I haven't successfully done that because even just trying to get into them and it's like still hard to try to figure out how to frame it. and who to ask, right? Like what <laughs> category of the world to ask? But when it comes to thinking about ranching as a whole conversation, a lot of my ecology students in my first week long that I did in May were all ranchy, like or cowboy type people because I had this person, Mad- Madison, Maddie, I didn't even know she was like famous online, Mustang Maddie, but she is, <laughs> I guess, sort of. She like really believes in my work and helped me get a bunch of students that are in the world that she's like tangentially connected to. And mm-hmm. a lot of these were people who had really interesting things to say about animals on the and... land in a way that I hadn't thought about, which was eye opening for me. And, but I know like I have friends that do stuff with goats and like that is a different thing than like large animals like cows and stuff and what we decide is like a way a cow should be on the land or whatever but we did have bison at one point all over from colorado all the way to the south but they were able to move over large spans so their impact was different because they didn't have fences but what do we do to recreate within a capitalist framework things that can happen so one thing that's coming to my mind is oh i Like I said, I have friends that have goats, for example, and they do goat walking and some people just do that as a way of life. Like I literally know people who live on public land all year round with their goats and they eat everything they can from the goats. Like the milk, they make cheese, they eat, they kill goats sometimes to eat, they dry the jerky and then they gather fruit. And then I also know people who like literally get hired to take their goat herd on someone's land. And it's like this sort of modern take on like a pastoral, like managing landscapes that need browsing, that need like thinning, right? By using goats, for example, in those places and they get paid to do that often because somebody needs some stuff happening on their private land. And this person has all these goats they know how to take care of and the goats can come in and do it and it becomes like a service, right? (laughs) Which is really interesting. That's a thing. And then I think about other ways that grazing can be beneficial if done in a certain way. And it can be economic at the same time, potentially. There's this person that I had on my podcast a couple of years ago, Allie Meter's Knight of T.E.K. Chico. T.E.K. means traditional ecological knowledge. That's used sometimes to talk about some of the stuff that those words. Some native folks I've talked to don't think it's weird and like overgeneralizing like what they do with the landscape. But She's like starting, she's started sort of, it's a business, but it's also a project training Native folks, but also non-Native folks to do the practices they've historically done on the landscape. And they do volunteering every week in these parks in Chico, California. And this is a long-term impact. And part of what her goal is to be hireable by like the forest Service. They have a group of people that know what to do that can come in and do nuanced tending work in places that have burned or like to manage for fire or for manage for different purposes, instead of hiring some company from far away and they come and just clear cut everything, or they come and do this one thing. They actually have a group of people that have a nuanced understanding of all the plants that are growing there and can be the people that get hired, right. To yeah. do this management that it, it's beneficial, I guess, too, because these large scale fires like kill a lot of people and cause a lot of harm in certain ways to humans and some would say are ecologically devastating i think that's still something we have to look at a little bit what does that really mean but so there's an economic piece here that having a job tending landscapes and making a bigger impact from it and getting hired to do it and it benefits multiple parties i'm like okay well that's a way to work with economy or with yeah. Money because that's already, already throwing money at this stuff, anyways, to fill a niche that's needed. And of course, gathering the seeds to replant is a huge niche that needs to be filled, too. And I know a few people who gather seeds in California for restoration work. It's basically a kind of wild tending or land tending, too, but they're just like, there's not enough seed bank, not, not enough people gathering seed. And there's money that's out there to buy these seeds to restore places. And there are ways that economics can be a part of this but it's also tricky because at the end of the day it's like again they're wanting to manage a lot of these landscapes so that they can be future in the future they can be economically viable for forest service again or whatever so yeah. not for the land <laughs> itself to be for itself unless it's for recreation Yeah, recreation people recreating is economically viable too because there's money made for people recreating but it's yeah, I don't know. Like, I think I'm grappling with this myself because I want more community in this kind of work. And I also want to be able to continue to do it and have what... It's not like I need a ton of money, but like the economics that I need to exist within. I've ended up having to do things like work other jobs for a while just to be able to get out and do these things just for the land itself. And it well I don't know. I think getting grants to 10 land would be really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know where that money exists unless it's framed in from an ecological restoration perspective, which gets problematic because sometimes they have ideas in that world about landscapes that aren't necessarily they're antiquated. Like they're willing to spray a whole landscape to bomb it basically to start over because it there's an invasive plant there or something to restore it back to some kind of past landscape that this idea of what a past landscape is. And there's some aspects that you have to work within that framework to get some of the funding for some of that stuff. And I don't know all the way. I agree with all of that, like way of thinking and some of the stuff around wild tending at gets people to ask a lot of questions about what plants belong, where if I'm right. taking elimination seed from two mountain ranges over and I'm moving it over here that, and it doesn't grow over here, but it grows over there. Is that bad? these questions come up and yet people did that historically they moved from way over there over here and that stuff comes up too when trying to get funding because people are scared of messing up where they have these ideas about nature and what belongs where that are pretty interesting sometimes so it intersects this pretty hard like yeah
0: yeah super interesting i was thinking about the goats like managing private land her people and whether that could be like over time morphed into okay this publicly owned park needs fitting we bring the goats pay the goats for that but yeah it's a, it reminds me i worked in the natural products industry for like a decade and this was basically like working on all sorts of parts of the company from the time they were like making products in a garage to like being considered to be purchased by huge corporations like coca-cola And so it was being in this really interesting world of all these people who had a lot of good values and who wanted to really do the right thing by creating these alternative products and by sourcing organic ingredients and all of this stuff. But then of course, over time, as you see them grow and try to scale to be a quote, like successful business that they're now reprioritizing, right? What was before like a passion project into we need to make a lot of money or like sell (laughs) to a big company. And I always sort of found myself like, Like one of the companies I worked for, literally this happened and Coca-Cola bought 30% of it. And at that point I was like, okay, I'm personally no longer interested, but I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. I think we're in, I don't know, part of sometimes what I think my podcast is about or like the life purpose of our generation (laughs) is to exist within this like very uncomfortable in-between phase where, oh, okay, like we're going to sell our like brand with all these good values to this corporation that's doing all these shit things but maybe over time that will help bring more money to the organic farmers who are producing those products for this product that's now can be like we couldn't distribute our product to like food deserts before but now okay this organic juice will be available in for like an affordable price because it's going through the coca-cola distribution center so anyway the messiness not that like i like all of it, but I think it's an interesting place to examine our own prejudices and proclivity toward saying one thing is bad and one thing is good. You know, like, well, maybe there's this kind of like middle ground where it's like a little squirmy or icky for a moment, but maybe eventually it will change things. And I feel like a lot of people avoid that icky space. There was so much talk in the industry of just that's terrible to sell your little brand to a big corporation. I get it. <laughs> But I think it's more nuanced than
1: that. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. I think about this because I existed so long in this little world, sort of semi like anarchist subculture. If you make any money, then you're bad, (laughs) or you're part of the problem, or there's a guilt and like that. And I'm not like, oh, trying to necessarily support like exploitation or anything. But it is true that having money gives you possible freedom and possibility like to do to make things certain things happen like i'm like if i had a certain set of resources right now and i have the ideas that i have yeah there's a way that i could do certain things that i just simply can't do right now and so it's like this idea well making money in order to then be able to give energy in a place that doesn't money making as a like goal yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot more and slowly just being more accepting of receiving that or something yeah. as way of exchange. And it's just it's hard though because it's requires like a lot of yeah, the ickiness thing. <laughs> and yeah. I've gave so much over the years for free. Like people always are messaging me, asking me plant questions or right? like their advice about a project. So many people who are yeah, doing like research. And want my opinion or yeah want me to explain to them how to do all this stuff with plants or like what do i do in my area whatever and i'm just like okay yeah it's hard because i just want as many people as possible to be like thinking differently or to be tending or to be like engaged with the landscape and then at the end of the day like it's drained me to to a point where like i have to be like okay i need to actually ask right I need to have. I need to ask for exchange. (laughs) It's just the reality, like that. I can't just sacrifice myself in the world we live in. Yeah, trying to change it, but then not even being able to do the things that I really want to be doing because. Now I got to go do something else for a while so I could go give more time for free to people. It's it's hard because I want to be able to, but we're not living in that kind of world. So it's been hard. It's been tricky transitioning that and like having people reach out and me being like, well, I can say these things. But if you want more time and energy from me, you have to like give me some kind of exchange because I'm just like, I can't. Like I've spent so much time outside of capitalism or spending my money on just learning like i made some money so now i'm taking the time to just learn as much as i can and Mm -hmm. yeah it's hard because i guess having enough then makes it more possible to give whatever yeah that's a whole conversation (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and
0: just i think that charging money for things is not it reminds me i think i've talked about this on the podcast before but i was so relieved when i was in africa last year and we were we spent a day with the hadsa who are hunter-gatherers and it's so interesting because they have these people who are like from the quote civilized world coming to see them all the time but they really truly have no interest in (laughs) going our direction they're like super like into their lifestyle however And they will say this themselves, like, they're opportunistic. So, like, you give them a plastic water bottle that makes it easier for them to put water in their mouth and they're going to take it. They're not going to be like, oh, no, that destroys the planet. I'm not going to make my life easier. Or if it's some sort of, like, industrial made clothing or something that they find. It just felt very relieving to me to be like, okay, like, these are the sorts of communities that, like, we're trying to model. And yet even they are, like, not confined by this like virtuous self-righteous attitude of participating in capitalism or making money or yeah being opportunistic at all or using things from the civilized world somehow makes the work that I'm doing or my like entire being quote problematic and it can be right like everything's nuanced but I think I wish there was a lot sort of yeah more of that kind of creative thinking about how we can move forward because otherwise we just get stuck in like hamster wheels talking about
1: philosophy that doesn't get us anywhere (laughs) yeah my senior thesis in college was on ethno-tourism and entheogenic tourism back it was 2009 when i graduated from college so it was like during an era like where ayahuasca tourism started to become like just starting to become a thing was like huge right and also just what happens when you go from a culture that has a particular mindset to another. And I think I had gone to Peru and I was like observing this sort of interesting exchange of like cultural consuming culture and had these ideas then that there was a strict good and bad that I was trying to figure out how to come up with. Like I'd go to, to Peru and then I was like, this seems weird. Like these people are performing their culture for us and we're giving them money to perform it. And there is something to think about there. It also made me look at my like, assumptions that somehow these people need to be living in this fantasy idea of what i think they should be which is like aside from what we mm-hmm. see as bad know, point about the world like well, why should they actually live without these things if they want to have a cell phone that's destroying my fantasy idea of what their culture is or something right. and i think the world is not that simple anymore and then you have people in the western world like throwing away their cell phones and going out and living in the woods and then you go to peru or whatever and those people being like give me that cell phone yeah and then we like are judging it i
0: totally had that experience i was like wow i'm such an asshole like i can have all these things and give them away but i'm gonna judge people who are in a different place in this cycle and like how could i possibly understand or
1: pretend like i know better that's nuts (laughs) yeah it's still bringing in some it's like we're coming yeah coming in seeking an experience or seeking an idea and we're still we're paying for this idea to be fulfilled and they know that to a degree and like a lot of different ways that this plays out but and also it's being shattered at the same time when i was 20 i was all really disturbed by it but i think now i'm realizing that it's not that simple yeah
0: Yeah. i think that's a good place to end it although i'm sure i could talk to you for another hour and a half (laughs) This was awesome. If you could tell people where to find you, like maybe if you have any courses or classes that are coming up, workshops, how could people like work with you and learn more about what you're offering?
1: Let's see. I have my own podcast called the Ground Shots Podcast. Two words, Ground Shots. And you can find that most platforms that you listen to podcasts. And that's just a way to listen to stuff that I've been putting out for years. And I've been trying to pick that back up again. I was have been pretty slow the past two years compared to what I was before that on it but I have I don't know 75 or something episodes up there and then I have a blog well I have a couple blog things I've been on Substack more lately which I really love you're on yeah. Substack too and then my Substack is groundshots.substack.com, and I yeah I've been just really enjoying Substack lately I've been like maybe I'll maybe, maybe write something this afternoon there just the ability to engage people versus the traditional blog or Patreon or some of these other platforms I've been enjoying, just like Substack as a node of being Mm -hmm. in connection. So I have some stuff there. And then I am, I have been teaching in-person classes this summer and there is another one I'm right now that's listed. There might be some other stuff I'll offer, but I haven't scheduled it publicly yet. But in early August, I have a four-day ecology class That I'm teaching in Western Colorado out in the high country, like above 10,000 feet. And my friend Nikki, who's amazing, land tender, wild tender, she's teaching the week before me and the week after me through the same organization that we're teaching through. And and she doesn't teach the stuff that often. So I've been telling people to like, hey, you should check out what Nikki's doing. I am teaching that four-day in-person class. and There's a couple spots left. So that is an opportunity if people are interested in like it is in Colorado and it is like using particularly ecology, to teach about, learn the landscape. But as I've, people are often asking, what well, does it matter whether I'm from that area or not? Yeah. And I've had students come from all over the country and they walk away being like, yes, this is super relevant to the place where I spend the most of my time, which is not here. Yeah. And it's hard to figure out how to communicate that, that to people necessarily in and all. But like I said, like critical, like using the word critical in front of what I'm doing is sh- it's just that we do a lot of exploration of ideas and relationships while being actually out in the field learning the plants and learning then how to take these tools elsewhere yeah. so that's what my in-person work has been and that that is groundwork is the nonprofit that i'm teaching through this summer they're based here in Peonia, colorado i think it's layinggroundwork.org is their website and that's how you can find the classes to officially sign up for any of them that I'm doing through them this summer and then I might be doing some online like another online class in the fall I'm just conjuring it I was doing some online teaching this past year and it was really cool to do and I also have a you can go on my website and you there's like opportunity there's ways that you can hire me or like for in person like consulting like if people want like plant survey done on their land or like my perspective going out and looking at what they have going on yeah. or resource gathering for people I started to set up that option for people or like in-person mentorship because I've had people keep asking me like do you do mentorship I'm like I've never really thought about that yeah that's cool and being someone that has traveled a lot is I'm in to just figuring out what that looks like to do Then I have a lot of perspectives on a lot of landscapes and places and so I can put my eyes in a lot of places yeah. and be able to share resources and like perspective on on how that place might be connected to what's happening in another place or how there's like a bigger picture there so there's like ways that people can reach out to me to engage like yeah me in that sense if they want to will other than say your that website
0: again yeah it cut so, out when you said your website the first time will you say it again just so i have it on the recording <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's ofedgeandsalt dot com. So I guess O F S E D G E A N D S A L T dot com. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. I really
0: appreciate you spending the time with me. Hello again. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Kelly. I hope you enjoyed it and will go check out her Substack and her podcast and all the work that she's doing. She has a great podcast and really awesome guests. So if this sort of thing is of interest to you, I highly recommend that. Maybe if you're in the area or would like to travel to the area, you can take one of her classes. I would love to do that in the future. And Yeah, a link to sign up for the Sex at Dawn retreat is in the episode description, as is the link to sign up for our book club. And, yeah, I'm going to play you out today with an amazing song uh, by one of my favorite artists, Holly Aerosmith, who I've played on the show many times before. She came out with a new song, actually, and I think it was, like, early this year, but I totally missed it, called Desert Dove. And the lyrics are extraordinary. Um, I feel like some of them are, like, taken from a Rumi poem. I was doing some research and it seems like some of them may have been lifted from other things, but either way, amazing, amazing lyrics. So if you have Spotify and can, like, look at the lyrics or Google the lyrics while you listen to this song, I really recommend it. Um, Yeah, Holly Aerosmith is amazing. I I recommend her as an artist as well. Beautiful folk singer. She has um, an album. Her last album is called A Dawn, I remember. It was put out in 2018, which was like such an awful time in my life, and her music really helped me through. And I'm sure if you've been following me for a while, you know about her or have heard some of her songs on my playlists or my podcast. Oh, playlists too! I I just sent out a new playlist to my Substack subscribers called It's Cancer Season, and I have a lot of feelings, which needs no additional explanation of it has the song you're about to hear on it, in addition to some other songs. Um, If you just search Anya Kotz on Spotify, you can find that, and if you want to be updated on playlists that I release right away, just sign up for Substack, Substack, Com. Okay, enjoy this song, and can't wait to return to the mic to bring you more conversations that I've had. I feel like this little lull of the podcast is coming to a close, and there's so much to bring you, which is exciting. So, talk to you next time.
2: you